1: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
2: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Megan Lombardi, a fourth year resident here at UNC. I'm Sasha McEwen, a
0: third year resident at UNC.
3: I'm Guido Rivera, the chief resident here at UNC.
4: I'm Alex Toledo, transplant surgeon here at the University of North Carolina and surgical director of the kidney transplant program.
1: And I'm David Gerber, the chief of the transplant program at UNC, and we're all very excited to still be with everybody.
2: Today we'll be discussing two cases, one of a combined heart-liver and one of a RCC found in a donated kidney. So this kidney case is a 71-year-old gentleman He has ESRD, secondary to biopsy-proven FSGS, and um, he was originally diagnosed with his CKD back in 2019, but was not yet on any hemodialysis. He had a family history significant of lung cancer in some of his um, close first-degree relatives. He had a normal uh, preoperative workup for his kidney transplant with several CAT scans that showed... Um, No abnormal anatomy within his abdomen and multiple stable nodules in his uh, lungs, but these were all um, being monitored and were not significant. Um, He, which we'll get into, was diagnosed with a papillary RCC on the day of his kidney transplant. And now he's well over um, his postoperative period. And he's now had at least a one three-month scan that showed uh, no residual or any new tumor beds. So in terms of papillary renal cell cancer, they're responsible for about 80 to 85% of all primary renal neoplasms. Most commonly, these occur in males that are age 60 to 70. And the survival is really good. A five-year survival rate for a papillary RCC is about 75% now. And the incidence has risen threefold higher than the mortality rate, likely due to our early detection of tumors at smaller sizes. A small papillary RCC would be considered less than four centimeters. And curative surgical treatments. Uh, there's two types, type 1 of papillary, which tends to present earlier and have a MET variant, whereas type 2 papillary is much more aggressive and tends to present at advanced stages uh, with a poor prognosis and has a genetic change in the FH gene. Specifically, cancer in donated organs occur at an incidence of about 0.5% or less, which makes it really difficult to have any standardized guidelines on how to approach this when you do uh, run into it, which is why this case is uh, pretty interesting. Potentially, rising rates of cancer in a donated organ can be due to um, increasing graft and patient survivals along with um patient factors such as smoking, obesity, hypertension, etc. So now we'll get into this case about papillary RCC. So now we'll talk about a case about kidney transplants. This case is a 71-year-old male with a history of ESRD, uh, secondary to biopsy-proven FSGS, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, stable pulmonary nodules, who presented to our institution for a directed donor renal allograft. In the OR while doing backbenching, the donor kidney ha- was found to have single vessels but a 7 millimeter nodule that looked like a cyst with heterogeneous contents. This was enucleated and pathology returned as a papillary renal cell carcinoma with no clear margins. A second margin was then sent that was reported to be negative. An extensive discussion was then had with urology and nephrology and the patient's family and all parties agreed with continuing forward with the transplant. This brings up the question of what's the usual evaluation for deceased donor kidneys, including test biopsies, procurement process, etc.? How are kidneys excluded, and how can you decide if they're suitable for a specific donor?
4: So, in regards to imaging of the deceased donor kidney, that oftentimes will depend on the mechanism of death. If it's uh, abdominal trauma or any trauma, really. There will often be CT scans, especially a CT scan of the abdomen, looking for any intra-abdominal injuries in the donor that we have access to. Uh, But short of that, if there's no indication for an abdominal CT otherwise, there's plenty of donors who have isolated head injuries or strokes who do not have any uh, abdominal imaging to look for renal masses. In those cases, we're Uh, left to rely on a gross inspection of the abdomen by the recovery team and uh, as well as uh, the thoracic team, which will also look in the chest for any unusual findings that would uh, potentially render the uh, organs uh, not usable. But barring that, we'll debride the fat on the back table of the kidney during the organ recovery and look for grossly for any lesions, uh, exophytic or lesions that can be seen uh, um, on the kidney. But oftentimes, um, there's not um, CAT scans or cross-sectional imaging to uh, look for those when there's no uh, further indication.
1: So
2: when uh, the recovery team is procuring um, a kidney and they're calling you to review the anatomy, um, what do you think about when you're accepting it for a specific recipient um, and what would cause you to exclude that kidney from um, being accepted?
4: So we'll look at uh, several factors on the donor side. The first thing would be the uh, kidney donor risk index, or KDPI as we call it. It's a scale from 0 to 100 with 0 or 1 being um, the most pristine of kidneys, uh, usually a young donor with no risk factors. And a KDPI of high 90s is going to be a kidney that's projected to have much less uh, less longer projected survival of that organ or graft function. And oftentimes would be from a patient who is older, diabetic, hypertensive. Um, And so we'll look at um, the KDPI to start with. And then from there, if it's a higher KDPI, these kidneys are typically biopsied. So we'll look at those uh, kidneys that are at higher risk for medical renal disease. We then look at the biopsy to confirm that. Is there any evidence of arterial sclerosis, glomerulonephritis, or glomerulosclerosis, um, fibrosis, hyalinosis of the uh, afferent arterioles? Those types of things on the biopsy. But beyond the biopsy, we'll also look at the donor urine output preceding donation, and um, also the anatomy. We'll look at the Uh, if there's multiple vessels or other complicating factors, the size of the kidney, and uh, then make a decision based on all that criteria whether to accept it for a particular patient.
2: So we know that papillary RCCs are responsible for about 80 to 85% of all primary renal neoplasms, and generally less than 4 centimeters would be considered a resectable disease. So when you see an RCC or suspected RCC on a donor kidney, What would be your threshold, or are there protocols in place as to when you might resect and continue with transplantation versus reject that kidney?
4: Uh, Overall, it's pretty rare to proceed with a a kidney that has a known renal cell carcinoma. Uh, There are some instances, such as this case, where we do give it uh, further consideration. There's sort of a paucity in general of literature on these scenarios, but there are a handful of uh, very small case series looking at these cases where a a renal cell carcinoma was explanted on the back bench, as we did here, to negative margins and close. And part of the reason that it's done infrequently is obviously it's a malignancy and then you're introducing it to a patient who's going to be immunosuppressed and it's somewhat unpredictable how that patient is then going to respond to, um, you know, should there be uh, a recurrence of that malignancy. But in this instance, uh, we have to consider a lot of the patient factors and the relative risks. So on one hand, we have uh, a 70-year-old patient who is on the uh, verge of initiating dialysis. He's got uh, known severe peripheral vascular disease, and with um, in looking at his CT scans, he had very uh, minimal targets in terms of his external and uh, common iliac arteries as far as where we could place clamps. And... If we didn't take this kidney for him, being that it was a directed donor, uh, very likely that uh, he would age out of his window for transplant. So we knew this was in some ways a a one-time opportunity for him to get a transplant. And when you look at the five-year survival of patients on dialysis of all comers, it's about five-year survival is about 35%. So when you take a 70-year-old with severe peripheral vascular disease, uh, we know that those numbers are probably much less. So, for uh, uh, this gentleman, we knew, again, this was probably going to be his one shot, and uh, in conversations with urology, nephrology, and his family, uh, I think we were all willing to take this risk. This was a very small tumor, less than uh, one centimeter in size. It had negative margins. Uh, It was a papillary cell, uh, type 1, which is uh, less malignant or less uh, malignant potential, uh, less aggressive profile. So, Uh, The risks were relatively small when we consider the context of putting this guy on dialysis and uh, potentially not being able to uh, transplant him in the future.
0: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
4: Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
3: Our second case is a patient in his early 30s with a history of Epstein anomaly that underwent multiple heart surgeries, including pacemaker and multiple valve replacements who developed chronic hypoxemia, pulmonary hypertension, and progressed to biventricular heart failure, as well as end-stage liver disease secondary to congestive hepatopathy. He was presented separately to both transplant selection committees. In the liver standpoint, he was approved for transplant based on his end-stage liver disease secondary to the congestive hepatopathy with a meld sodium of 31, with elevated creatinine, normal sodium, elevated total bilirubin, and INR. He was listed as a UNOS status 2, with exception for heart liver. On the same period, he was also accepted for heart transplant due to his congenital anomalies that were not amenable to repair with ventricular failure uh, post-previous reconstructive procedures. After preoperative optimization with a multidisciplinary team, he was successfully transplanted and was kept on tacrolimus for immunosuppression. He had multiple biopsies from both heart and liver and did not have any episodes of rejection. Most recent studies demonstrate a normal EF and liver synthetic function as well as hepatic function panel. And Dr. Gerber, how do we uh, select these patients? How do you choose if they're going to get heart or liver or a combined Transplant and what happens while they're waiting for that? Do we have an increase in mortality uh, on the waiting list or how does that work?
1: That's a great question, Guy, and it's certainly the fields evolved. Going back to the early days of liver transplantation, where most of those considerations for combined liver transplant were really around folks with um, amyloidosis, with FAP, and typically those individuals had heart disease. And if they were diagnosed early enough in life, you'd consider them to replace the liver as well because that's where the, gen- the um, gene error was occurring, was being produced by the liver, the ab- abnormal amyloid protein. But the field that has really, has, as it's evolved, has changed really because of the improved survival with patients undergoing complex congenital heart surgery, now living into their adult years, who end up with a congestive hepatopathy picture that oftentimes is undiagnosed until they are at the stage of cirrhosis. So what we're seeing, and literally it's been only over the last, I'd say, three to five years, are these individuals in their typically in their 30s who underwent complex reconstructive procedures in their early childhood years and now pre- presenting with ascites and heart failure related to outflow problems with their liver? So, basically, this congestive hepatopathy picture. When you get to that point, the challenge you have is that the liver. Now has an end-stage irreversible condition, so it needs to be replaced. But you have the same plumbing that contributed to that hepatopathy. So you really are looking at a combined heart-liver transplant, a simultaneous transplant.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think this example that you gave is exactly our uh, of our case. You know, the patient had multiple surgeries in his uh, early life for uh, to fix his congenital anomalies and. Unfortunately, still progress, to so heart failure requiring um, other procedures, pacemakers and, and all. But um, when the, and how is the allocation process? like is, does that change the amount of time that the patients stay on the list, or at, waiting for a second
1: organ will, will make them more at risk uh, of dying? In the right, right. Another really, really good question, Guy. Um And and certainly the f- the communities had to look at this as we have this increased number of combined organ transplants of how to prioritize those patients. Um, As organ allocation has changed to allocation circles, so organs are coming from broader regional areas, typically what's – and this is what's happened in the combined heart-liver community is it's driven by the sicker of the organs, which oftentimes in this case it's the cardiac condition that's hospitalizing the patients because it's rare that the patient has a permanently high MELD score that would be driving the allocation. But whichever is the sicker organ, in this case the heart, then drives – So the heart's allocated, the patient is listed for a combined organ, and in UNOS we've changed that policy so it's an obligate pairing of that donor organ. So even though the organ could be coming from 500 nautical miles away, they'll have to give the liver with that heart from that OPO at the same time because we, we obviously need to do the simultaneous transplant.
3: And Dr. Gerber, um, we all know that different organs have different cold ischemia time. I think for the liver, you know, you try to ideally less than eight hours. For hearts, less than four. But being the combined, especially on the procurement part, is there any specifics mm. that you want to uh, talk about or, or, like, figure out when you're getting that organ?
1: Yeah, so in, in looking at these complex um simultaneous organ transplants, I think to your point, right, the cold ischemia time becomes a major factor in determining which donors you can accept. So knowing this, pay, these pay, especially these heart-liver patients, the cardiectomy is going to be very complex because it's a redo, redo, redo. Sternotomy, oftentimes in st- with that static cold time max of four hours, you're then looking at donors that probably are, have a transport time you know, of one hour or less. So you can get that heart in. And and typically, where the way this field evolved was you would be doing the heart first, and the same reason we want the liver to not be traveling a long distance, because that cold ischemia time, is it's all cumulative, right? So you've got the donor transport, the time for the heart transplant, and then getting the liver in. Now, usually the advantage is, is that the hepatectomy isn't as complicated, so you can make up some time on the liver transplant side, and you can extend that period to reperfusion a little bit longer without too much challenge. What's really helped, and and I think we're starting to see more, is the whole use of ex vivo preservation systems. So Heart in a Box, some of the new normothermic liver perfusion systems that are coming on board, have really allowed the field to relook to say, well, what's the best way to approach this? Because now Heart in a Box extends your time that the heart can be out It really does give you an extra two to four hours, so you may choose to say, "Okay, well, what about if we go ahead and get the liver reperfused in this case, or vice versa, getting the heart in and leaving the liver on the pump?" Where some of the two of the ex vivo perfusion systems, the livers can be can be on that system right now, somewhere between two to four hours, and some of the early experimental data is shown probably can get out to six to eight or longer hours on those systems in addition to the recovery time. So almost taking this in a very, instead of being in a very compressed urgent time frame, especially with where donors are located and being able to make things in a more stable environment, allowing the cardiac, so if you do the cardiac transplant first, allowing cardiac anesthesia, to kind of normalize the patient, even though they're still going to be on their, um, you know, on bypass and being able to maybe even reverse or start to get some of their coagulopathy under better control prior to the liver transplant. So short answer of what I'm saying is that the, the advent and implementation of the ex vivo preservation or perfusion systems is allowing us to really then tailor how we do the simultaneous transplant and deciding which organs to go first. And this will also play a role with liver-lungs, which is another complex field uh, of, of combined organ transplant.
3: Yeah, I think, like you said, a very complex thing. And in terms of the technique uh, you mentioned about cardiopulmonary bypass, I know that normally they would do the heart transplant in the cardiopulmonary bypass, come mm-hmm. off a of bypass, uh, eventually do the liver on veno venous right. or... Is there any role of doing everything on cardiopulmonary bypass? or?
1: Yeah, no, great. And, and you're may, maybe I, there, there was another question you had asked me before that I'll get back to that I forgot. So you could. You can do the entire case on cardiopulmonary bypass and not shift to veno-venous bypass. It's not as ideal from the liver transplant side. Uh, because of the pressure gradients that you're running in, in that case. So typically what we'd rather have on the liver side is having that venous outflow controlled. That total arrest prevents us from the reperfusion on the arterial side being, you know, the dynamics are not going to be the same. Whereas in the liver, we want to get that portal arterial waveform flow back. We're not going to have that on total on total cardiopulmonary bypass the same. And so preferentially getting to veno-venous would be better for the inflow part of the liver. The other question you had asked, which I totally fuged on before, but coming back to, was what are the other complexities of this? You know, being a somebody who thinks of transplant from below the diaphragm, less complex in the reconstructive side, but more so on the heart, where you may have multiple different conduits and bypasses that you have to create for the new heart transplant we always think about that on the liver because if we have to do a portal vein reconstruction or arterial reconstruction where we're taking iliac vessels which is our preference this gets into the issue of you don't not having to do anything different in the cardiectomy of the donor where um, yeah for for implant but knowing that That reconstruction could be more complex and a lot of communication between the heart and liver teams about what do you anticipate your needs to be. And again, that's where going back to the ex vivo perfusion systems, allowing us to kind of sort things out in knowing everybody has what they need to, to be successful with implantation.